My name is Ben. I'm one of the teaching elders here, and it is a joy for me to be here with you, opening God's word with you. And we are in a journey through the Sermon on the Mount called The Good Life According to Jesus. But we're in this series where Jesus is giving the, the constitution of the church, this, this manifesto. But far from just a polished political speech, we've been learning and listening and hearing that Jesus' heart is for us. Like this is Jesus' heart to his people. And he longs to connect our heart with his heart. And last week we were in this section in 17 through 20, which we reread today, kind of this hinge, this transition from the Beatitudes to Jesus' depiction of heart level righteousness in everyday life. I want to kind of review that because it's really important for our message today and for the the rest of this chapter. And I want to begin that review by talking about parenting a little bit and rules that we make as parents. Many of you have little kids and you know what it's like to make a lot of rules. Some of you maybe remember back when you had to make rules for your kids. You know, these little rules like keep the water in the bathtub right? Or don't stand on the back of the couch. Or don't throw heavy things down the stairs because your mom's going to think that it's you and freak out. And we come up with these little, these little mantras sometimes. Like one of the mantras in our house is be curious, not critical. In other words, ask questions. Don't make assumptions. Or for our little guy, we have a, have a seven, eight-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. And my little son, Caden, his love language is hitting And so we have this little mantra, hands are for helping and hugging, not hitting. And the goal behind these little mantras is not that our kids will memorize a thousand little rules by the time they leave the house, but so that eventually they'll understand the heart behind those little mantras. And I know Caden hasn't quite gotten it when he's like, I didn't hit my sister, I kicked her. (laughs) I didn't hit her, I threw a toy at her. So my goal is not not that my son will have a hundred mantras he's memorized, but that eventually he'll understand the heart behind them, that whatever he's given, whatever gifts that God has given, are given to love other people and not to hurt them. And in many ways, that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is helping us understand the heart behind the commands of God. We learned last week and we read again this morning that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And one helpful way of understanding the word fulfill is to think of it as maturity. That Jesus came to bring to maturity the story of God that we see in the Old Testament. And in many ways, the people of God in the Old Testament are the people of God in their infancy, in their spiritual immaturity, and God gave them a ton of rules. But his heart behind all of those rules, all those mantras, those details, his heart was always that they would understand his heart. They would get to their heart and connect it with his. And this is what Jesus is doing in this sermon. In the same way the Old Testament prophets did, Jesus, in in a much more authoritative way, is saying, don't forget the why behind God's commands. And so he's calling us into this place where we're discovering the heartbeat of God through his commandments. If you think of it visually, maybe this will help. This next slide. 
God wants us to get beyond our behavior to our heart. And then he wants us to look at his commands and get beyond this, the surface wording of the commands and see what's God's heart behind those commands. And then he wants us to make the connection at that level. He wants us to connect our heart with his heart. And so that's what this Jesus meant when he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's going beyond the surface level behavior, the, the wording of the commands, and getting to the heart and seeing where those two things connect. So today, as we look at this first example that Jesus gives of heart level on the ground, everyday life righteousness, I want us to ask those two questions that we've been asking every week. What, what is the spirit encouraging you towards? What is he challenging you and comforting you with? And, and along with that, asking this question, especially in this teaching, God, what is your heart for me in this? How does my heart, how are you trying to connect my heart with your heart through what you're saying in this passage? So let me just pray and invite you to pray with me that Jesus will do that. Jesus, give us your heart today. Um, you're going to say some hard things in this passage. Help us to remember that you love us and you say hard things because you love us. And that you really, you really are after our hearts. So make us humble listeners willing to sit under what Jesus has for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to walk through this text that we read, verses 21 to 25, and just try to answer two big questions. What's the big deal with anger? That's the first question. And then what are the little steps towards overcoming anger? And we're going to find that they're actually kind of big steps. So what's the big deal with anger? And what are the little steps towards overcoming anger? So look at verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, and let me just stop there, because Jesus uses this formula six times in this passage. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And what Jesus is doing is he's asserting his authority. He's saying, I have the right to tell you what God meant by what he said. I have the right to tell you what's the heart behind this command. And what Jesus is trying to do is give an unobstructed view of God's heart. So sometimes that means he's undoing what people have added to his commands. And sometimes he's simply showing what's, what's been missed with this. What was the original intent of this command? And Jesus begins this section by quoting directly from the Old Testament. You shall not murder. So he's not correcting something that's been added by the scribes and Pharisees in this particular instance. He is, he is showing that this command has been limited in its application. It's been limited to physical murder, and the full intent of this command has been missed or ignored. And so Jesus says, here's, here's what God meant. Here's God's heart when he gave the sixth commandment. He says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus does not start in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> he jumps right in the deep end 
and says, let me tell you how anger and murder are connected. Some pretty sobering words that Jesus speaks. And right out of the gate, we've got a couple of questions that we have to ask. One, is all anger sin? And two, how, how is anger related to murder? And when we answer those two questions, we're going to discover what the big deal about anger is. So the first question, is all anger sin? Because we read instances in the Bible. Jesus himself, he throws over tables in the temple in anger because poor people were being taken advantage of. Paul in Ephesians actually commands us to be angry. Be angry and do not sin, he continues, but be angry. But then Jesus and Paul both say that anger is something that we need God to eradicate from our lives. So what, what is it? Is anger good or is it bad? And the answer is yes. And the more you dig into the heart of anger, it becomes apparent that toxic anger is actually a good thing that has gone very bad. It is a good thing that has gone very bad. In his book, Good and Angry, which I highly recommend by David Paulson, he says, at its core, anger is very simple. It expresses, I'm against that. It is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something you find offensive and wish to eliminate. It is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. And so anger in its natural state is actually a gift from God. It's a gift from God. You cannot live in a broken world and see what you see in a broken world and not be angry at what you see. If you don't get angry at the brokenness in this world, you're numb to the human condition. And anger done right is one of the most constructive forces for good. It is anger that moves us to justice and to mercy. It is anger that actually moves us to love other people. It's when we say, I'm against that, because God is against that. I, I'm, that matters because it matters to God. That makes God angry. And so it makes me angry. But what makes the emotion of anger so powerful in its constructive force is what makes it so destructive when anger goes bad. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga says, good is original, independent, and constructive. Evil is derivative, dependent, and destructive. To be successful, evil needs what it hijacks from goodness. You remember Venom in Spider-Man? <laughs> Venom attaches itself, himself to Spider-Man, and takes the good and commandeers it for evil. Well, that's what happens with sin. That's what happens with, with anger. The anger is commandeered. The strength of anger, the power of anger for constructive good is commandeered by sin and turned into a destructive force. And anger begins to go bad when we replace God as the standard of assessment with ourselves. When we say, you've offended me, You've crossed my line. That offends me. 
And one of the first questions to ask when you're angry is, am I angry because my expectations haven't been met? Or am I angry because God's expectations haven't been met? Is this, is this something a loving, holy, compassionate God is angry about? Or is it just me? And so the first reason that anger is such a big deal is because it is something good that has gone very bad. And that's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about the unhealthy, toxic, sinful form of anger. And he, in the Greek text, the word angry is in the present tense, which means it's a persistent anger. Some scholars translate it nursing a grudge or resentment, resenting someone actively. And, and this, this anger gone bad can take on all kinds of faces. It, it definitely can take on the, the vein-popping, blood-boiling, angry, verbally, physically abusive face. Or it can be the withdrawn, cold face, smoldering of resentment that says, you're dead to me. It can be the prolonged ten- temper tantrum of a kid or an adult who has not gotten their way. Or it can be that scowl or harumph behind the phone or the book when you're sitting and relaxing and your spouse asks you for your help. And you just, well. Anger can be irrational, temporary madness, but it also can be a cold, calculated lens through which you view the world as you build a collection of hurt and resentment over time. But no matter how it expresses itself outwardly, either in a a burst, an explosion, or an inward smolder, the sobering thing about anger, and the second reason it's such a big deal, is that it has the same DNA as murder. Has the same DNA as murder. The same motivations in our heart that would move us in their worst expression to kill someone are the same motivations that move us to resentment, resentment, and a bitterness. And we're going to see this especially in these next two examples that Jesus gives. But let me just put up the slide that we began with here, and let's let's look at what what Jesus is after. At the heart of the sixth commandment, you have that slide, Andre, with the the chart on the right-hand side, the heart of God's command. Yeah, there's there's one after that actually has the sixth commandment. Do you see that in there? It says valuing personhood. Did I miss that one? He's going to find it, I think, if it's there. But imagine on the right-hand side, there you go. Here's the command, do not murder. At the heart of that command is not just the preservation of human life. It is the valuing of personhood. You see, God always looks at us as entire persons, as whole persons. And so the implication of the sixth commandment, do not murder, is to preserve that personhood. That image of God that God has created in human beings, that is body, mind, and soul, that is part of the sixth commandment. And at the heart of our anger is this desire, even if it's a temporary desire, to do damage to somebody's body or their soul. And so Jesus says, if you look at the heart of anger and you look at the heart of the sixth commandment, and you connect them there, you can see that the DNA of anger 
and murder is the same. So God cares just as much about us stabbing each other in our hearts, in our backs, as he does about us stabbing each other with an actual literal knife. God cares about us as we approach each other as whole people. This is why the whole uh, Ten Commandments could be summed up as love God and love your neighbor. Because you're asking this question, do I value this person, body and soul? And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus says this kind of anger is worthy of judgment. The word judgment that Jesus uses is the, the, the word for the local town court. Three to 21 elders, depending on the size of the town. You bring your case to them, they'd evaluate it, they judge it and pronounce guilty or not guilty. And so Jesus is saying, you think anger is no big deal. I'm telling you, it's a big deal. It's a sixth commandment, big deal. It's a go to court and have a guilty verdict pronounced, big deal. He's not done. Like every good preacher, Jesus has three points. All right. So he says in verse 22, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Now, some of you are probably thinking, whew, haven't called anybody Raka this week or this decade. I'm good here. I'm off the hook here. But let me give you a more modern translation of the word. It's idiot, jerk, stupid, Raka, Raka, stupid idiot. Some of us... Uh, that grew up in the South or lived in the South. It's like, bless your heart. You poor person. You don't know what you're doing, do you, honey? Raka. That's what that is. And all of these have one thing in common. They question the mental competence of someone. But the reason they question their mental competence is because it's a desire to dismiss them or shut them up. You see, if you're an idiot, there's no point in talking to you. If you're stupid, then you're not worth my time. And so when we say things with malicious intent, like shut up or talk to the hand, do we still say that? Or I'm done. Like that last week I had a heated agreement with my wife, otherwise known as an argument. And I, I said, I'm done. And I, I didn't mean I'm done with our marriage. I'm done with this conversation. And I walked away and I had to come back later and say, I'm, I'm so, please forgive me for temporarily murdering you. Because that's what I was doing. Like I wanted, I wanted the conversation to end. And so I said, I'm done as a way to shut her up. And the DNA of that is the same DNA as murder. And you don't even need words, right? Some of us myself included, have this amazing ability to make people feel like an idiot with our facial expressions. And I'm really good at that. My wife tells me that I'm good at that. And so I'm working. I've been asking the Lord, please change that about me. And maybe some of you are good at that too. You don't have to say stupid. You just have to look a certain way. And I was like, yep, that's what he's doing. And again, what's important is not memorizing a list of words that you don't say. Jesus isn't saying, okay, make a new list, thou shalt not murder, and here's another list of things to do, not to do, not to say, not to look like. No, what Jesus is doing is saying, get behind the why of your words. And whatever words you use, whatever, whatever facial expressions you, you express, 
you're asking the question, am I communicating through this that someone is less than, that they're not worth my time, that they're just to be dismissed? Am I damaging their soul, their personhood, their reputation, even temporarily? If so, we've entered the territory of murder. You guys convicted yet? I've, had, I've been in this for three weeks, so I'm a lot convicted over Jesus' words. And that's why, again, we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus talks about judgment. This time he says you're answerable to the Sanhedrin, the court. That's the 71 elder court, the supreme court of Jesus' day in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, you, you think calling someone an idiot is no big deal. I'm telling you, this is, this is a big deal. This is sixth commandment stuff. This is a supreme court case that doesn't kick, get kicked out. This is real. This is honestly touching the heart of God when he says to do no murder. Jesus isn't done. He's got one more. He says, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And while raka, idiot, is dismissal, this is just outright contempt. The word behind the word fool is morose, where you get the word moron from it. But this is not the way we use moron. We use moron in the sense of stupid. But this was much, much worse, much deeper. When you called someone a fool, you were not just questioning their mental competence, you were questioning their moral compass. A fool is someone who is morally incompetent. Or as one theologian said, like someone who is vile and not to be loved. In fact, it was essentially the equivalent of saying to someone, you're going to hell. Or go to hell. And in the Middle East, it was and still is this honor-shame culture. Where individuals were expected not to bring shame to the community that they were in. And so to call someone a fool was to say, you're in this community, but you don't belong. Like, you should go to hell because that's the only place you're worth being that's worthy of you. And all you have to do is spend 10 minutes on social media and you realize that the shame culture is not just an Eastern thing. We have our own shame culture in the West. And when someone posts something that offends someone, instead of engaging that person with honor and curiosity and engagement and charity, the frequent response, and this is across all political and religious spectrums, it's not just one group of people that does this. The frequent response is simply to put them in a bucket, to name them a name that will dismiss them and say, you don't belong here. And so people will launch, launch insults like you're just liberal, you're progressive, you're woke, you're a right wing nut job, fill in the blank. What, what's the, the epitaph that can be said that puts people in this box where they can just be dismissed instead of engaged with as a person? as a person. And I'm bringing this up because it's really easy for us to be discipled by our culture. Like any of us that are on social media long enough, you start to be affected by that. And so when we have everyday relational conflict, when someone offends us and doesn't meet our expectations, instead of love and humility and curiosity, do we find ourselves tempted to take the easy route 
and just figure out a way to dismiss them by putting a label on them, a name on them? Do we roll our eyes in disgust or assign a moral category to behavior that may or may not actually be a moral thing? Do we say things like, this is easy for me, I don't know why it's so hard for you to follow Jesus this way. Or I can't believe you call yourself a Christian and you do that. Or that's the problem with you Enneagram 6 types. Or fill in the blank with your favorite personality that you use to bludgeon people and make them feel less than. Now like Jesus, I'm, I'm trying to offend everyone equally here, okay? <laughs> and I promise we're getting to the good news, but don't wriggle out of the tension too quickly. One of the themes that came up in our prayer meeting before the gathering is just this image that Jesus is a surgeon and he's got really careful, wise hands and a loving heart. And we like to jump off the table too quickly when he's trying to do surgery on us and show us our heart. Jesus never cuts without the intention of healing. And so let him do his work if he's working in you right now. And once again, Jesus ends with this statement of judgment with a lot of irony. Jesus says, those who essentially tell others to go to hell are themselves in danger of hell. And the word Jesus uses for hell is Gehenna. It was an actual place in Jerusalem, on the south side of Jerusalem, where they took their trash and they burned it. And it burned 24-7, so it became this metaphor for eternal judgment. And so the people that were listening to Jesus would have been shocked to their senses because they'd been to hell. They'd been to Gehenna. They'd thrown their trash in. They'd smell what it smelled like. They felt what it felt like. And the response would have been, really, Jesus? I mean, it's that bad? It's, it's really that bad? It's worthy of that kind of judgment? And Jesus says, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so there's a third reason that we know our anger is a big deal. The first one is it's something good gone very bad. The second one is it has the same DNA as murder. But third, our anger is a big deal because God is at war with our anger. He is against our toxic anger. He wants to eradicate it from our hearts. He is at war with anything that is at war with his creation. And I love how theologian Frederick Bruner says it. He says, the holiness of God is at war with all bitterness, hatred, and hurting. And where divine holiness collides with our hostility, the crash is called the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's war of love against everything gratuitously hurtful. God's love would not be love if it did not work to remove all that ungraciously hurts. And as much as God is against our anger, he is for us as his people. And he doesn't just drop the judgment bomb and move on. He gives two case studies to help us with our anger. And so these are, these are the little big steps towards overcoming anger. And we're going to read these case studies and you're going to be like, huh, doesn't seem super helpful at first. But I think if we spend a little time in it, we'll see that they're more helpful than at first they seem to be. So let's look at the, the two case studies. Verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, in light of how big a deal anger is, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember 
that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So, so here's the picture. Remember where Jesus is when he's speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He's in Galilee, okay? If you look at a map, get that map, Andre. If you look at a map of Galilee and Jerusalem, you'll see that there, there's a line. If you draw a line, a basic line of travel between Galilee and Jerusalem, it's about 60 miles. It's about 60 miles, about a 20-hour journey, average walking speed. So, so you've made this long journey and you got Gertrude the goat standing next to you and you're coming up to the altar and you realize, oh, my brother or sister has something against me. Now here's what that means. We don't use this language, but if someone has something against you, it means you've sinned against them and they have a legitimate reason to have something against you. So you're, you're the one who sinned in this case and you know someone knows you've sinned against them and you need to make it right. And so you're standing there with your, with, with your goat and you realize, wait, man, I have not asked for forgiveness for this. So you tie up Gertrude's legs, <laughs> you, leave, you leave her by the altar and you head 60 miles back to Galilee and you say, please, please forgive me. I was wrong. I sinned against you. I was angry with you. Please forgive me. And then you walk 60 miles back you pick up Gertrude and you offer your goat as a sacrifice. Now, case, two's, case study two is a little different. Same basic point. Jesus says, verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So here, here are the situations with an outsider, someone who's not a brother and sister, and you're the one who's guilty, maybe caught stealing. In Jesus' day, if you're caught stealing red-handed and you've already spent the money, you're giving it away, or, you, or sold stolen property, the person who was the victim could take you by the nape of your neck and drag you to the court right then and there and say, this is what happened, and get a guilty verdict immediately. And if the person couldn't pay, they were thrown into prison until they could pay. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It didn't work very well. So someone who owes you money in prison where they can't earn money to pay you back. And so what Jesus is saying is if someone's angry at you, especially in a situation like this, it's probably just going to get worse. So you, you might want to try to reconcile before you get to court. Like try to move towards the angry person and appease them. Repent, tell them you'll do whatever you can to make it up instead of waiting for that anger to get to its full expression. So what's, what's the point of these two case studies. How do they help us in our everyday anger? Let me give you just a little parenthesis before we hit these things. This chapter is full of examples, which are starting points or little steps for everyday life. Jesus is not covering every situation. There are some situations that are super complex, situations where anger and Resentment are because of abuse and they have to be worked through in a much more delicate and a nuanced way. Hard cases of anger that are connected with trauma and past wounds. I've realized in my own journey with anger that a lot of times my anger is actually a lot of things all mixed together, like fear and sadness and loneliness and hurt. 
And so I need Jesus to minister to those things, not just my anger. And so if, if you have a situation that comes to your mind as we're working through these, you're like, how does that connect? Like my situation seems so much more complex than that. I want to encourage you to do two things. First, come and talk to us. Let us, let us help you with that. But then listen to the heart of what Jesus is saying, because I think even with complex situations, there's something that we can learn from this, these case studies. So three things, simple things, but profound things from these two case studies. When you're experiencing anger and resentment, number one is urgency. Move quickly. Urgency. William Barclay says, when personal relations go wrong, in nine cases out of ten, immediate action will mend them. And the major point of both these case studies is, don't let anger brood. (laughs) Address it right away. Move quickly. Go the 60 miles. Get get to the heart of it really quickly. And here's why urgency is so important. Let me give you three metaphors really quickly that help us understand what happens when we let anger simmer, okay? First of all, resentment or anger, it deliberates. So think of a courtroom. And I'm I'm pulling this from David Paulson, his book, so I'm paraphrasing him a lot. But toxic anger, resentment, sets up a courtroom in your mind where you don't just play the part of the victim, you also play the part of the plaintiff, the investigator, the sheriff, the DA, and the hangman ready to execute capital punishment. Here's the thing, the courtroom of your mind becomes a kangaroo court where the accused doesn't get a defense attorney, doesn't get character witnesses, doesn't have due process or the benefits of extenuating circumstances, there's no second chances, there's no mercy, there's just you trying the person you're angry at and them being found guilty. You ever done that? Had imaginary conversations in your mind where you present all the evidence and the, the evidence is so overwhelming and so compelling the person is just pronounced guilty. We do that. That's what anger does. It sets up a courtroom in our own mind. That's why self-righteousness and anger are twins. They go together because we begin to look at other people and think our judgment is Right? But it gets worse because resentment deceives. Resentment is a tremendous builder of worlds. You ever see Inception and, you know, Dom has that ability to build these worlds that are so real that the people in that dream world think they're real. Well, resentment does that. It has the ability to build worlds, to make it seem like what you're seeing is real when maybe it's not where you become the king of perception. And so instead of curiosity and humility, you see conspiracy against you. And resentment often views people through the lens of past hurt and begins to see offenses that don't actually exist. And you build this world that feels so real that suddenly you find yourself living in a world of misery that you have constructed. And so Jesus is like, take care of it quickly. Don't build a world of deception. And then third, resentment destroys. James 3 says our tongue is like a fire, set on fire from hell. And anger is so destructive. 
It is so destructive. It is like an uncontained forest fire if it is allowed to continue. A spark of unhealthy anger left unattended can become a raging, destructive fire. Recent studies show that the part of your brain that lights up when you're attacked physically is the same part of your brain that lights up when someone gets angry at you and treats you with contempt. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he connected anger and murder together. Anger can destroy not just others, but also yourself. Anger turned inward is so powerfully destructive. So Jesus says, move quickly. But then second, community, move towards people. Move towards people. And, and this, it seems so simple, but this is so critical, right? If toxic anger is damaging to someone's person, if it objectifies them, if it depersonalizes them, then the opposite of anger, the evidence of repentance, is that you treat people as people, as image bearers. And so can you imagine this story that Jesus gave? Can you imagine the guy in Galilee that sees his friend coming from 60 miles away? And his friend says, yeah, I left my altar at the, my, my gift at the altar. I left the goat there. I came back because I, I needed to tell you something. I'm sorry. Imagine how valued that person feels. You, you went 60 miles for that? To sit down with me and to tell me you're sorry? Wow. That shows value to the person. I'm going to my soapbox a little bit here, okay? We have so many forms of communication nowadays that are impersonal, right? And it's so much easier to pick up our phones and post an aggressive or passive-aggressive post on social media or send a text or an email when what we need to do most of the time is either pick up the phone or better yet, drive 5, 10, 50 miles and sit down with a person and say, man, I was really hurt by what you did, and I'm angry. Can we talk about that? I'm not going to be a soapbox, soapbox legalist, but I do want to encourage you to ask the question, does the way you're communicating when you're trying to reconcile with someone, does it communicate, hey, I really value you as a person? Like, I really want to hear you. I really am curious. Why would you say what you said? I want to hear that. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten here to work and I've had to pick up the phone and say, Amanda, please forgive me. <laughs> like I messed up. I was a, I was going to say Jack A-S-S. So I was, yeah, I, I messed up. Please forgive me. I, I forget what we can say in church and what we can't. Uh, and there's been times I've had to pick up the phone and call a brother or sister and say, hey, what you said the other day, that, that really hurt. Can you tell me like why you said that? Like, I'd love to understand that and, and help, help work through this. Because if I let it go, then resentment and bitterness just build. And so when we understand that the heart of the command is valuing the person, we ask the question, how, how can I communicate in such a way, move towards reconciliation in such a way that values, shows them I value them? So urgency, community, then finally worship. Move towards God. Move quickly, move towards people, then move towards God. Now, you might be wondering, why is this last and not first, right? Why does Jesus say, drop your goat mid-worship, go be reconciled first? Because intentionally unreconciled relationships, and I'm using the word intentionally, intentionally. Intentionally unreconciled relationships, because sometimes we do try 
and they're not reconciled. But when you intentionally don't move towards reconciliation, that can hinder your worship. Peter, in 1 Peter says, hey, wives and husbands, if you don't treat yourself like your image bearers, your prayers are going to be hindered. Wow. Don't treat your spouse like an actual image bearer, someone made in the image of God, and God is going to not hear your prayers. That's pretty serious. Jesus says later, if, you're, if you won't forgive, then you're not in a place to receive the Father's forgiveness. And even in Jewish tradition, there's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, the 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur, people are to go and reconcile with people horizontally, their relationships. Then on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, they come and they receive forgiveness from God. You see, when we understand the heart of the command against murder as valuing the person, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because as you're worshiping, the word means worth-ship, right? You're saying God is worth worshiping. And you start to think about what does God value? Where does God show worth? Well, God values his image bearers. God values people that he has made. And when we start to have our hearts realigned to what God values, it should move us to say, if I haven't valued that person, I need to go as an act of worship. This isn't worship paused, okay? This is not worship paused. This is worship continued. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't, just, don't stop worshiping. Just take the scenic route, right? Go, go to your friend first and reconcile as an act of worship, as an act of, of saying, God, what you value, I value. And so I'm going to reconcile. Then come back and worship me. And I, I love that Jesus says, come back. He says, come back. And think about that. As the worshiper would come back, get poor Gertrude, who's been awaiting her death, and put her on the altar and she sees a very graphic display. He, he or she sees a very graphic display of that animal being killed. They see God's righteous anger over sin, that sin demands blood. But they also see that God has provided a way for that blood to be spilled from an animal instead of them. And we know that that sacrifice, as we keep reading the story of God, we know that Jesus becomes the lamb the once for all sacrifice, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And as worshipers of Jesus, we come and by faith we see our sin is so bad that Jesus had to be killed on a cross. But that God provided a way for that judgment that we read about to be poured out on Jesus instead of on us. And we get to come to that altar all over again. We get to come to Jesus and to his cross all over again and say, Jesus, my sin, my anger really is murderous. It really is as bad as you say. It really is a big deal. And so I'm so glad that the cross is a big deal too. I'm so glad. To quote Frederick Bruner one more time, he says, Jesus' command will, almost, will call almost daily to conversion. For we meet several difficult people in bad situations almost every day. It is an invitation to Jesus in the most practical daily ways. Every angry incident is a fresh call to conversion. And our toxic anger should daily lead us back to the cross. To say, Jesus, yes, I deserve judgment, but Jesus, you took that. Yes, this was 
murderous, but Jesus, you died for murderers. To say, God, I want, I want my heart in tune with your heart. And Jesus didn't just die. He rose again from the dead so that I'm not just forgiven. I have new power to actually have my heart changed deep down. Not just the surface behavior, but my heart changed to value and love the people that God has made. So let me circle back to the beginning and just ask what, what's God doing in your heart? Let him keep doing it. Don't get off the, the table, the surgery table too early. But ask him to keep with his carefulness and his wisdom and his love keep cutting and know that we have a savior who loves to forgive us and loves to rescue us and loves to change us. So we'll come back to these two questions. How is the Spirit challenging you? Have those questions, Andre. How is the Spirit challenging you? And how is the Spirit comforting you? And we'll take some time to respond. And maybe your response right now is, I, I don't know how to respond. <laughs> I don't know what God's up to, but I feel he's doing something. And you just want us to pray. That's great. If you're new here, we take, at the end of our gathering time, we take 20 minutes or so, and I'll come down here, Kobe will come up in a few minutes, and we'll put a whiteboard up, and we, we take this time because we believe that we, the Spirit wants us to be formed, that this is a moment of formation, and so we don't want to just be consumers of sermons. And so I heard a, heard a sermon on anger today, it was super convicting, stepped on my toes, and I'm out. No, we want to respond and receive more comfort from the Spirit of God in this moment. And so it's for formation, it's also for invitation. We're inviting the Spirit of God to speak through each other. My voice is not the most important voice in the room. More, more times than not, when we have these discussion response times, someone says something. It's like, oh, man, that was really good. I'm so glad the Spirit said that through them. That's what I needed to hear. That's what someone else needed to hear. So we're recognizing that the Spirit of God speaks through each other. So I want to invite you to just to pray for a few minutes. Take two, three minutes in silence and ask the Spirit, how is he comforting you? How is he challenging you through his word? <laughs> 